0: Next scripture reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26, beginning with the first verse. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket. And go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give to us. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. You shall set it down before the Lord your God and bow down before the Lord your God. Then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. Here ends our third reading. Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me and all of us to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you haven't noticed from the design on the front cover of your order of service, today marks the first Sunday in the season of Lent. So Lent began last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday and carries on until the great feast of Easter. Now, this is an opportunity for us to do something with this Lenten time. Lent traditionally was a time of fasting, prayer, and penitence for those who would be baptized on the Easter vigil. And over time, it's come to be a a designated time set aside, a designated season that is set aside for all of us to take on some new spiritual practice or try and deepen our faith in some significant way. And so the the series of sermons over the course of Lent, I've entitled The Journey of Lent, and they're all intended to take us a little bit deeper in our relationship with God, to take us on an intentional journey where we can figure out where God is calling us next in our faith lives. And it begins with our text from Deuteronomy and our sermon this morning. Now, one of the great joys about having a personal library is that you get to discover books on yourself. I'm one of these people who Somewhat obsessively buys books So if someone gives me a book recommendation Or I see something in a magazine or a newspaper I'm likely to put it on my Amazon wish list Or just plain go ahead and buy it You know, they've got that on the Amazon app They've got that buy now thingy It's so easy, you just slide, next thing you know The book's at your doorstep And so books tend to accumulate In piles around my house <laughs> And the nice thing about that is, every once in a while, I'll wander through these books and soak in the sort of atmosphere of all that learning of years past that I have not yet read and might never read, and I see one book that catches my eye, and I pick it up and begin to look at it. And this past week, the book that caught my eye was a book by Jonathan Merritt, entitled Learning to Speak God from Scratch. Merritt is someone who is a writer, lives in New York City, but he grew up in the Bible Belt, and his dad uh, was the president, apparently, of the Southern Baptist Convention at one point. So he was, like, deep into the Southern Baptist world. He moved up to New York, and he tells the story that one of his first weeks in New York, he's on the subway platform on Sunday morning, heading off to church. And uh, since he wasn't from New York, he didn't get the memo that you weren't supposed to talk to other people. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER And so he uh, turned to the person on the the woman standing next to him on the platform and started to strike up a conversation. And she asked him, Oh, where are you going? He's like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to a worship service. And her response is, Well, what's that? And here's this person growing up in the Bible Belt in Georgia, just shocked that anyone on the planet would not know what a worship service was, and so this sparked a conversation where he started to talk about church and what church was, and asked her her faith tradition, if she had any, and she was someone who was in the Baha'i tradition, Uh, and then she talked about her tradition, and, you know, she talked about this amulet that she wore around her neck to ward off various evil spirits, and Jonathan Merritt was like, wow, I'm most definitely not in Georgia anymore. (laughs) And what he discovered the more time he lived in New York is how few people actually talked about their faith, vocalized it in any way, even with their friends. Faith questions just plain didn't get brought up in his experience. And again, this is a big shift from where he came from in Georgia And this this led him to a lot of deep thinking. One of the things that it led him to was when he was trying to explain certain concepts like sin, grace, salvation, he realized that since he had grown up with these concepts every day, he himself hadn't thought deeply enough about them, particularly to explain them to someone who wasn't aware of what they were. But he also realized, he's like, this this dearth of religious language, this dearth of religious vocabulary, this inability of people to articulate their faith um, has certain problems, for one, a lot of people have, most people, I would say all people on some level, have a deep need spiritually to connect to God. There's a spiritual dimension to life. And having a vocabulary to be able to articulate that is important. And it struck Merritt He's like all these younger people in New York City who might classify themselves as being spiritual but not religious did not have the language in which to talk about it. And that was a deficit. Another thing was, is picking up from linguistic philosophers... Language can also shape your experience of things. If you have a language for God and salvation, if you have a language about sin, it actually changes your perception of the world around you because you have the words to name what you see. It can actually alter your experience. So Merritt looks at this and says, this is a major problem. We we have a word deficit. There needs to be, as he said in in the title of his book, we need to learn how to speak God from scratch. And that got me thinking. It got me thinking of growing up in New England, in, outside of Boston. And again, growing up outside of Boston, things about God were never spoken. I mean, ever spoken. Now, again, I grew up in a town that was fairly religious. The suburb of Boston I grew up in had some very large churches, and a lot of people were involved in them. It wasn't that people weren't religious. They just never talked about it. In Boston, the culture was growing up. Anyway, that religion is very much a personal thing. And therefore, it's meant for you to keep within yourself, and you don't share about it or talk about it with others. So people just never spoke about it. Of course, as time has gone on, uh, and particularly as religious conservatives have become more politically active in this country, and had a larger and larger influence on public policy in this country, there has been an increasing distaste, among many, for conservative Christianity and particularly for the type of Christianity that talks about God and Jesus and are you saved and, you know, have you met Jesus before? All these things become negative trigger words for a lot of people. They want to avoid them. You know, Merritt, Jonathan Merritt, this author, testifies to that in New York City where he would bring up something Christian and all of a sudden people would just unload on him all all these negative things that then he'd have to, whoa, 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 I'm not like that. How about you? Are you someone who talks about God a lot? Or Jesus? To your friends, your family, your colleagues? Are you comfortable using the vocabulary of the faith? In what ways does it come up? If you're not comfortable using the vocabulary of the faith, why are you not comfortable with it? Our reading for this morning, you know, comes from the book of Deuteronomy, towards the end of Deuteronomy. So, Deuteronomy is shaped rhetorically as this great address from Moses to the people of Israel before they cross over into the promised land. And so, this is one of the last instructions that Moses has given to the people of Israel saying when you go into the promised land uh, and you have this land, the first fruits of this land present to God and also when you dedicate those first fruits to God, there's this whole wonderful thing about then part of it is giving a testimony of how God worked in your life. The Israelites are called on to say that. It's like, yes, you know, my ancestor was Jacob. He wandered or, from the house and lineage of Jacob. And my ancestors uh, of the house of Jacob, led by Joseph, ended up in Egypt and tell this whole story of how God worked and brought the Israelites to the promised land. It is this personal testimony of God working in the life of this Israelite who presents the first fruits to God. Could you do that? Could you name where God is working in your life? Would you do that? So this past week, uh, in addition to reading this merit book, I uh, dusted off one of my favorite theological books. So I'm going to get a little nerdy because I love this book. It's a book by H. Richard Niebuhr, a UCC theologian, who is the younger brother of Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, who was the longtime, you know, very famous public theologian on the cover of Time magazine. Well, Reinhold had a younger brother, uh, who I would say is the much smarter younger brother, <laughs> uh, who was a professor at Yale Divinity School and wrote a series of just incredibly, uh, you know, intellectually incisive texts, uh, one of which has long been a favorite of mine that I hadn't read in a while is called The Meaning of Revelation. And the reason why I picked it up is because it touches exactly on the question that I'm raising right now. Niebuhr opens uh, opens his book by examining why is it that people don't talk about revelation, don't talk about God? What gets in the way? Niebuhr takes a different approach from what Jonathan Merritt might say. What Niebuhr says is if you go back to the 18th century, to the Enlightenment, there was this debate between Enlightenment philosophers, people like David Hume, who were not religious at all, and religious apologists. And what grew out of this debate was this separation between the natural world and the supernatural world. Okay? In response to the scientific revolution, it's like, okay, well, you've got the supernatural world where God exists and the natural world that more or less functions on its own. This, of course, gave rise to deism, that sense of a watchmaker God, a God who sets up the world and lets it go on its own. So you had this, this two-tier system that arose out of the 18th century. And so by the 19th century, Christians, Christian theologians, people like Friedrich Schleiermacher... Uh, in Germany, ended up basically ceding ground to the Enlightenment philosophers and ended up locating the religious experience within the internal experience of... uh, your internal experience of God. So you might talk about God as being... An experience of the numinous or sublime. You might talk about finding God in nature or, you know, those particular moments where God is present. You try, there was this attempt to universalize the experience of God. Schleiermacher talked about it as the absolute dependence on God. Now, the thing about that that Niebuhr points out is that that actually strips talk of God from any religious vocabulary over time. The priority is making sure that it translates into the enlightenment rationalist framework of its day. There becomes no more of a need to talk about uh, God in an old sense. Instead, it's like, oh, yes, I had a great experience of a sunset. And Niebuhr thinks that this, this of course, doesn't... He, he, he that this is, this is a major deficit for us as Christians. And he proposes uh, a way to deal with it, which I find intriguing. <laughs> Niebuhr talks about how... Uh, and again, he's writing this book in the 1930s. It's amazing how far ahead of his time he is. Niebuhr talks about how every single person who writes anything or says anything does it from a particular social location with a particular history. You can't take take anything out of its own history. You look at the creeds of the church, the creeds of the church of a very particular history in the fourth century, for instance. And it's hard to understand them unless you understand the perspective of the fourth century at its time. Everything has a history. Karl Marx, writing in the 19th century, has a history to it. So there's no objective world that you can get to. Everything has a history. And then Niebuhr makes a distinction between external history and internal history. He's like, there's history that's just a series of events that happen. All right? External history. Then there's internal history, which is your perception of the events that happen how you perceive it, how you experience it. Internal history is where values come in. So, for instance, he said, let's say, someone has eye, let's say someone has problems with his or her eyes and has eye surgery. An external history might give the descriptions of the process through which the eye was healed by a doctor. An internal history might have given a description of before I couldn't see and now I could and what difference that made and how that changed that person's life. One is an internal history that's focused on values, the other is an external history talking about details. Uh, Niebuhr brings up the example of the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln, talked, Lincoln opens the Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers uh, brought upon, <laughs> oh, I know, this is where it's, it's like, uh, always in front of people, you always mess up. Uh, four score and seven years ago, <laughs> our forefathers uh, brought, brought forth a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Okay, And so, this is where Niebuhr's like, here is a great example of internal history. Lincoln is talking to people who are Americans and defining what it means to be an American by giving value statements. Saying, back in 1776, something special got started. They were our forefathers, not some random people. And our forefathers conceived this land as a land of liberty and equality. And that's something we have to live up to because it's our history, is the way Lincoln is framing it. An external history might say well, this is what happened in 1776, and here were the people involved, and here's what they did. You see the distinction? All of us have internal histories, those narratives that shape the way that we see the world and give us values. Niebuhr talks about that's That's what faith is all about. Faith is where our values are. What we have faith in is what what, what we put our value in. And each of those values, each of those objects of faith, has a particular narrative, an internal history to it that gives it coherence and meaning for you in your life. As an American, there is a narrative of what it means to be an American that has certain values. One of the things you could argue is that some of the difficulties in our society today are two different, or several different competing internal narratives about what it means to be an American. It's about history and the way history is told, not in terms of the external events, but in terms of the way it's lived and experienced by people and individuals. Okay? I come from Boston. You, know, you could look at the internal history of the New England Patriots, where you know, for certain people in Boston, the Patriots represent something. They're struggling against all the outside world that seems to hate them. You know? <laughs> Their cheating is not really cheating because it's, it's the Patriots that are doing it and we're standing up for Boston. <laughs> Whereas the external history might be a little different, and the internal history of someone else looking at that might be different. Niebuhr lifts this up because he says, this is the way that everybody functions, particularly with things of value, and particularly in terms of religion. The Hebrew Bible is the internal history, not the external history, the internal history of the people of Israel. It was written by and for the people of Israel to give them a sense of their identity, who they were, and what their values were. It's not a history that tries to relate all the various facts and details of what happened when. It is told from a very particular point of view that has a value statement, and that value is focused on God as having a special covenant with the people of Israel. That's what that text is. It is an internal history of the people of God. Similarly, in the New Testament... You see the early church giving their internal testimony and confessing that testimony about Jesus. Who was Jesus in their life? How did Jesus fit into their life? How did Jesus save them? They're, making, they're giving that testimony to them. It's not an external historical account, but an internal history. Now, Niebuhr says very clearly that these two things do relate to one another. Your internal histories are affected by external facts. So you can get up and you can claim your particular internal history. Someone can say, well, that's not factually what happened. And then that gets woven into the way your internal history changes and shapes and moves forward. So there is a relation between the two of them, but where the, where the context of faith is is in that internal history that you hold within you. And revelation for Niebuhr is that moment, that thing That gives coherence to that internal narrative And for Christians That's the revelation in Jesus Jesus gives the coherence to that narrative The purpose to the narrative The shape to the narrative for Christians Now one group of people that are particularly good about using this history This internal history Within the context of Christian worship and life uh, Is the black church In the United States. African American church in the United States. There is a very real pregnant sense that when, again, going back to the time of slavery, when African Americans were enslaved in the United States and reading through the Bible, they saw the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt and they said, aha, that's us. That's our narrative too. And so God was the God of liberation that was going to bring them from slavery to liberation. And that narrative was a narrative that was adopted. A liberation narrative. That's who God is and again that narrative that internal narrative is deeply embedded in the black church and there's this uh, if you've heard a lot of sermons in the black church one thing that I see all the time is this relating of the history of where God was here and 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 God was here here. you can hear that reputation that, that repetition that repeating of the history that reinforcing of the narrative that puts you in the narrative And we could do the same thing here at FCC. You think about the congregational tradition. Yeah, you can give the external history of the pilgrims and the Puritans, of course, with all sorts of aspects to it. But for those who come out of that tradition, here are people who were fleeing from England and religious persecution in order to establish a colony based on God's principles. A place where they could worship on their own, a place that lifted up certain principles like covenant, the life of the mind, working together in community, not having a hierarchy. These were things that deeply shaped uh, our Puritan ancestors, and God was there. We can say that God led them to it. God was present. God was present when you had people like Jonathan Edwards and Horace Bushnell and others being leading theologians in the United States, pushing, that, pushing the theological boundaries of their day. That's what, it, that's, that's what that God was present in that. God was present when William Lord Garrison helped to lead the abolition movement and other congregations were involved in that. Or when they went into the urban slums during the social gospel movement to improve the United States in the wake of industrialization and some of the negative things that came out of it. God was present there. God was present along that journey. Can we name it? Can we, can we be comfortable with that narrative? Can we live in that narrative? The narrative of FCC is somewhat very similar. In the mid-1950s, you had people here who did not find a place to worship in the city of Houston. And they felt very strongly about certain issues, one of which was a liberal theological perspective and another which was justice in society, particularly at that time over race. God was present with the people who founded this church and walked with them. That's part of our narrative. In the mid-1960s then, when there were debates over whether this church should stay within the UCC or leave it because of the, the pronouncements over justice issues that the UCC was coming up with, this church decided to stay within the UCC and continue to be within that vein of social justice. I think God was with the congregation in that discussion. In the 1970s, when the congregation helped to, to, help to establish to of Guest Heights, God was present there. In the 1980s, when God was, I think God was present as this congregation was involved in the founding of the local chapter of Habitat for Humanity, or TMO, God was present in the 1990s in this church when we came up with our own hymnal, a hymnal that expressed what we believed and how we could worship together, or when the congregation voted to go O A, even though in this side of Houston, there didn't seem to be much reason to do so other than to live out their Christian witness. And I think God continues to be with us today. Can we name it? When God moved people in this congregation to help start a farmers market here, that gives local farmers a chance to direct, to sell their produce and other crafts directly to people, to lift up community values and localism, to create a space for the community to come together and gather. God was present there. I think God was present when, and if you remember it, when Ricardo Martinez, you know Shirley Taylor's son, got up and gave his own testimony about being an undocumented person in the United States and what that was like. What it meant to be a DACA recipient in this country. How important that was to him. And you sit here, you could hear a pin drop in this space. God was present there and led members of this church to continue to fight for that. To fight against Senate Bill 6, the bathroom bill. Again and again and again, God has been present and God is still present now. Can we name it? And can you name where God is present in your individual life? Your life. How does your narrative fit into that? How does your narrative of your life fit into that biblical narrative? Can you name where God's been present? I think God was present in my life. Again, when I came out, I came out to the right person. Someone who I didn't know that well at the time, but Eleanor Banco loved me and showed me God's grace. God was present there. I think God was present when God called me into the ministry. I think God was present when God led me to Yale Divinity School of all places. There was a very weird set of circumstances through which I found my first job. There was a providential set of circumstances that brought me here to Houston, Texas. I believe that God was with me in that journey and continues to be with me. Can I talk about it? Also through the bad things. When I went up to college and did not have the easiest time in college starting off with, was struggling with many things, faced real failure on an existential level for the first time, God was still with me there especially looking back on it. I can name it. I think God was with me also when when my father was dying. That experience changed me. It was difficult, it was hard, but it was also sacred and holy, and I'm a different person because of it, as much as I still miss him today. As we begin the journey of Lent, as we begin a journey of trying to deepen our faith as Christians— our first step is to try and be able to name the vocabulary of faith and particularly where God has been moving in your life. Take time this week as a Lenten devotion to think about that and name those times. Ask yourself if you're comfortable about naming those times. Try to place yourself in that narrative of faith. Once we do that, that first step of trying to name where God is It makes it much easier for us to then look in the future and ask, where is God leading us next?